0: assert
1: my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Remember, just because you're doing a lot more
2: doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Don't confuse movement
0: with progress. We live in a paradoxical time where we have more comfort, but less peace. More connectivity, but less connection. More information, but less wisdom. The purpose of this podcast is to explore these natural tensions with independent voices who will push our thinking. This is the Paradox Podcast.
2: So it took me getting good enough at it
1: to know how good at it I was not. It took me, it took me getting just good enough at it to know I'm not good at it at all. The closer
2: you get, the further you feel you have to go.
1: You can learn
2: quite a lot from experience. That's one thing. There's something after
1: that, have you the will and determination to do anything about it.
0: Hey everyone, welcome to episode one of the Paradox Podcast. I'm your co-host Kyle Tibbetts, here with my fellow co-host Alex Kahn. For our first episode, we got to sit down with Michael Davidson, the CEO of GenNext, an organization that recruits business leaders in the private sector, educates them on critical issues like economic opportunity, education, and global security, and empowers them to have a direct impact both inside and outside of government. Michael's a super sharp guy who cares about restoring the marketplace of ideas, reviving civics, and solving the leadership deficit in this country. Hope you enjoy the episode. So we're here in downtown San Francisco, right next to Union Square, with Michael Davidson, the very first guest on this podcast. To start things off, can you just quickly introduce yourself and, uh, and what you're about? Um, yeah, Michael Davidson. I work
2: with and lead an organization called GenX, and we basically uh, try to look at shaping a world for future generations. So we attract entrepreneurs, executives, and help them understand what are the big issues that are going to shape future generations, primarily in economics, education, and uh, in global security.
0: And we're going to talk about Gen X in a little bit. I want to I want to dive into that a bit more. Let's do it before we get into Gen X, though. Just kind of at a high level. You're a contrarian thinker. What's something that you believe that most people don't, or maybe many people don't? Most is kind of a high bar.
2: We live in a time of massive change. Um, we have no idea what type of either opportunities or destruction uh, technology is going to bring upon us. You, know, you have sort of a dystopian school and then the utopian school, um, but. You, there, so there's this sort of summoning to think big about what type of world are we going to shape and what big problems are we going to solve and it's very technology, 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 but I wonder if we just need to revisit the classics and there's certain things where hu- human beings have just never, we just, we haven't changed. Um, a friend of mine, Juan Zarate, has this, uh, this term where he calls it the conceit of chronology, you know, that if you come later... You kind of think you're better, mm-hmm. and I don't. I don't know. I, I so I'm still kind of processing this because, if you look at uh, you know, Plato, for example, had a lot to say about behavioral psychology mm-hmm. uh, or behavioral economics, but he probably would never, obviously, would never have articulated it that way. That's probably one. Is revisiting sort of the the ancients. Um, two, and I think Karl Marx would really really celebrate me saying this. But, but I don't think we assess it the same way, but I think there's an inverse relationship between wealth and purpose. That the more the wealthier you become, the more you remove from the stakes that it took to accumulate and create that wealth. Um, you, you, you go a little bit more inward, you start to nest, and therefore that hunger for a better world and attachment to big ideas. And in the times when you do live that sense of purpose, because I do believe all human beings have this search for meaning, but the way you experience that might become more of a virtue signaling for a wealthy individual than it is, um, you know, kind of really understanding what is, what's going on in the world. How could I best serve that? Um, thirdly, I think that the, I'm coming up on a three part. I actually have have one more. I'll shut up. I have one more and I'll shut up. I think another one is that, um, as, as a dad, the, I have three kids and it is, it is the, it is the most important thing to me in my life to help them do whatever I can to help them flourish right? But part of flourishing also means that they are ready to shape the world in in which they're going to grow up. Mm -hmm. Like that they're going to be ready to shape it, not just enjoy it, not just be happy. But part of that includes going out and shaping the world in which they're going to grow up. And I've talked to a lot of dads who, some of them tend to be wealthy and some not, but there's this, there's a sentiment that, you know what, my most important legacy is how I raise my kids. And I think even though I'm obsessed with being a father, I'm starting to wonder if I think that that's insufficient. One, because you're, you're setting too narrow an example to your kids.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, two, you can't totally control that outcome. It's a lot of factors that influence it. Um, you know, And later in your life, you're when you're they're giving your eulogy, you're going to be fine by all these other things that you did while you were raising children. Mm-hmm. So that's another one. And then the last one, there's a sense that if you're a social entrepreneur you are a higher order in the social uh, strata because you're gonna be the most impactful to society or go out and start a company create wealth uh, or advance technology or invent something so if you start to think well what is the most impactful vehicle for social change I wonder if it is probably the least sexiest thing at all and that's just civics you know what, what Alexis de Tocqueville observed which is how Americans just come together and interact in their community, and how that, has, by extension in a free society, how their government operates. So I don't mean politics, um, and I don't just mean social entrepreneurship, I don't just mean philanthropy, uh, and I don't mean simple volunteering, I mean really taking a view of your role in a free society. Um, and so I, I think if, per, if we have more people who are taking an interest in civic life and civic renewal, I think we, you will have the longest tail and the largest lever to be impactful over time. So I would, those would be my. Well, that's uh, that's four. certainly a and lot to not unpack. <laughs> I, <I've laughs> I'm not trying to remember all, all four, and I think I've got them. Feel free to challenge me on any of them because. Well, let's I'm let's start kind of with the last on. one and then go
0: back to okay, the first okay. three. The last point is interesting. I think, from my perspective, whenever I hear a large company talking about how, oh, we need to do this this .dot org push or this this X for good, you know, Google for good, any type of thing like that. To me, it's a little bit of a tell that they don't believe that what they're fundamentally doing as a business is good in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think the best companies, the best for-profit companies, what they actually do, the product they deliver, should be inherently good, right? Yeah. And then my pushback, I guess, against these nonprofit or these social enterprises is if you don't build a durable business with profitability, you're not likely going to have the longevity to sustain anything, even, mm-hmm. if, you, even if you land upon something good. I do agree that this lack of civic mindedness, and you and I've talked a little bit before this about like the the cultural leadership deficit in this country is a big problem because it just leaves a very wide gap in Mm -hmm. society. There's people that are chasing causes and people that are maybe even virtual signaling on one side, people that are chasing profit and chasing impact on the other. And you don't have someone thinking about how can we organize society in a way that allows all people to flourish. And not assuming that doing so involves inherently being in government or being part of government. Yeah.
2: Well, and I think as
0: a result, um, you know, you
2: could say one of a symptom of this or exacerbating factor is like the rise of um, tribalism. But what you see, tribalism forces you to remove yourself from the from like how the world works, right? And you know, to your point about these companies. Who are either virtue signaling or, or saying for good? It, what made it made me think of was this whole like reimagine capitalism, mm. conscious capitalism. Yeah. So you hear quite a bit of reimagine capitalism, or our system is broken. We need to redesign the system. Mm-hmm. And so then you'll say, well, what do you what do you mean by the system? Do you mean democracy? Do you mean checks and balances? Do you mean separation of powers? Do you mean federalism? Like what do, what do you, do you mean the United States Constitution? What is it you actually mean? And so there's this sort of uh, um, searching for first principles because you, we've just sort of like lost sense of the fundamentals. So you, we're always kind of trying to talk ourselves into some, some new thing
1: and re- redesign some new thing. And it's really just, let me just be really good at this thing. It seems to me like Silicon Valley is probably the best example, but some things change so rapidly and then some things lag so far behind. Obviously, the Mm -hmm. technology is incredibly rapid. Every day, we're probably making more progress than they made in most centuries, I would guess. And so what hasn't changed, right, is the culture. It's always been out here, we're the insurgents, we're the underdogs, we're taking on the establishment. It seems like there still isn't that realization the most of the folks here are now the the establishment yeah and they still are very much acting oh. you can be a 500 billion dollar company but you're still the underdog and you're still fighting every day for your life and that mentality is hard to get out of that is the culture in uh in this area and in certain other areas and how do you get folks to take on that responsibility and kind of that new title that they've uh Amassed based on wealth, based on power, based on their reach.
2: Yeah, well, I, I think that's a an astute observation that they are the establishment, but the mindset is counterculture. And I don't so much think they're counterculture, but I think there is an element of. Uh, well, I mean, we we studies have already shown that there's a massive disconnectedness in terms of how people understand life and experience life in the mm-hmm. coasts versus the rest of the country, mm-hmm. or in w- wealthy places versus the, in the rest of the country, and they kind of they start to take themselves um, quite a bit more seriously. But to the question of, you know, what do you do about that? At least our, you know, our organization, Gen X, I think, um, given that you have a leadership deficit, and by that I mean that there's not um, leaders with a clear, well-rounded sense of purpose that is applied in, in every facet of their life. So in, in their, you know, in their family, at their, in their business, and how they treat people, individuals, everybody's kind of compartmentalized, we've atomized ourselves. And and so you don't see a through line, a values-based through line. Um, and so you see that sort of tear down. Uh, in our country, you see the, the, the bigger symptom in politics, where you just don't see a lot of these big, bold leaders who can imagine a world and rally people around it. You know, so there's another place. And then you see that society is just Breakdown of trust in institutions across the board. Breakdown of trust in each other and relationships. Now, what's interesting is you have uh, Putnam had did Bowling Alone. This was before the rise of tech. This is we're around the time period of TV, television, and so. But he started to see that there is a breakdown. There's a great book um, called The Vanishing Neighbor, and he he makes the argument that we actually are not haven't declined the way we interact with each other. It has changed in style. we still interact with each other, but we interact with each other on more narrowly defined um, traits. And so therefore you see like it, it, it accelerates in, in the direction of tribalism. But so if you're seeing that people are not showing up with a broad view of leadership and purpose, if you're seeing that uh, institutions are breaking down, if you're seeing that people are organizing and more narrowly defined, then where does one go today? People need this. People need structure. People need relationships. So that's what we try to do. Right? We try to take people who are in their bubble mm-hmm. and expose them to different perspectives and different ideas, but with a shared sense of purpose and, and, and direction. So you have somehow you you balance shared direction with diversity, the pluribus unit. Um, but it's interesting with technology companies is they they're running away from the values that help them be successful in the fir- first mm-hmm. place. Free markets, innovation, creative destruction, right? Things are going to be all about disruption, but but not in society.
0: Just to synthesize a couple of your ideas, I wonder if what we're dealing with at the core is really a purpose deficit. And what I mean by that is mm. you have big companies that reach kind of this later stage uh, of their existence, right? Their, their business models are proven. Uh, Google's got like enormous margins, right? So they're a cash printing machine. And they do all this, all this theater around ancillary products that they're launching to try to show that they're innovating, but really they have this amazing cash cow that just keeps on giving. And I wonder if that's the macro version of the micro version that you mentioned, which is people, individuals, they gain wealth, they, they struggle and they achieve, and then they start to lose purpose. And I wonder, I wonder if individual and companies follow a similar life cycle of they look back and they realize, well, it was it was being in the garage when it was just two people. It was struggling to make it and pay our bills and figure out how we were gonna do it as individuals and companies when we really had meaning and purpose. Yeah. And now that we're at this stage of wealth and opulence, we're almost looking back and questioning our values because we've lost that sense of who we are. And then I think to connect this to your first point, I wonder if it has to do with we've sort of unmoored ourselves. From a lot of this ancient wisdom that the reason why it's wisdom is it's just it's existed for so long we think that we're so smart there's maybe like you said a recency bias towards you know we're, we're the smartest people that have ever lived on the planet when in reality we have these people that lived much more grounded lives they weren't like dopamine addicts on their phone all day yeah and so i wonder if there's this connection between all three or four of your points which is that purpose is essential to living a really good life, mm-hmm. either as an individual or a company. And when you lose it, that's when you start to see things just fall apart. And it could be that purpose is grounded in that ancient wisdom that we lost. And then your third point around kids and, and and kids being the legacy, you want to you want to demonstrate both the values and like the purpose in life that you would want them to model. But you do it by going out there and changing the world where it needs to be changed so that they can have the confidence and the efficacy to do it themselves. Yeah. So, I,
2: I like that a lot. There is a purpose deficit, and I think that the universal the universal quality of human beings is they want, um, they search for purpose. There's a lot of these phenomena that I think are all related. There's the, the opioid crisis, the rise of loneliness, the spread of radicalization and terrorism. I think there is a through line between all of these things. And the more that we are disconnected from a sense of, Compassion about these people who are isolating because they don't—they're having difficulty attaching to this sense of purpose, so they misfire, right? It'll misfire becoming an addiction, misfire becoming a path of uh, violence. But wealthy people will also—they'll do the same thing, which means regardless of class, you know, they might experience it a little bit differently, but at the fundamentals, regardless of class, um, human beings—if they—if that piece of of purpose starts to fall apart uh, the social fabric will really start to fray and it is it's a strange thing right now because we are more we're more we're more connected less bonded um, somehow have more information but less knowledge uh, and and those are really bad ingredients for uh, human beings who like to have purpose and connection and do things together mm-hmm. and I th- for especially for our country which is of many one Right now, it's a lot of more of of many of many, Mm -hmm. and and you can't have a a national identity that is bottom up like it's always been in a free society. If culture and civics are are breaking down at every class level, it's a it's a very dangerous thing. So when I think about the world that my kids are going to grow up in, I want to be able to point to leaders.
1: that they can emulate. So uh, we want to get more into the specifics of Gen Next. Uh, one more quick question before we, we dive into that, and this is kind of a two-parter. So what is a problem that you think is urgent, something that we really should be thinking about that we're not? And what is a problem that you think we're spending too much time, too many resources, worrying too much about, that isn't that big of a deal? Let
2: me just put it this way. The way I would... I would- try to teach my kids. You could probably answer the question that way. Um, I think I would try to help my kids understand, one, to pay attention to the ideas that are shaping the world around them, and try to learn them and be a, not just observe them, but be a vessel for them. Um, And so, to my previous point, I think we are not discussing enough you know, civic renewal mm-hmm. and um, civic life. It's just, it's literally like your gym teachers, your government teacher, and that's kind of the way our society treats it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that would be one thing that I think to press people to really think about like, what's going on in their community. Because when you, when you notice that a lot of conservative and liberal will challenge people to like, come together, we're a country, we need to come together in these moments. And the next sentence is just bashing the other point of view, right? Yeah, of course. And so that—that's it. That's that's a real issue. I can't outstand this person. I hate that person. Uh, but we, we should all come together, um, <laughs> which
0: means that person needs to come yeah, to my side like when they every- lose yeah. the next yeah, election. Or it's like everybody come together but them? Right. But kind of what I was hearing in your answer is we don't care enough about civics, we don't care enough about ideas and the power behind ideas, how they can be weaponized, but also used for incredible um, leverage in, in a good sense. And then we are far too emotional, meaning we let our emotions individually and collectively, like kind of the collective psychosis as a country and as a society, kind of rule the day. And we kind of just are whipsawing from one crazy thing to the next and one news story to the next and yeah. one news cycle to the next. And it gets very crazy. I wonder if we maybe have landed on a little bit of a paradox, which is that you can almost flip that around too. So in one sense, we're not externally focused enough and too internally focused. And in another sense, we're probably not internally focused enough and too externally focused. And I'll give my example, kind of connecting back like this. to what we said before. I had a tweet a while ago, and uh, it was basically, I'm going to paraphrase myself poorly, but it was basically saying that the modern struggle is a struggle with abundance. Mm-hmm. So whereas in the past, it was, it was all about scarcity and all these great ancient leaders you talked about lived in worlds where there was scarcity, Right. But by abundance, I mean too many thoughts, too many distractions, too many choices, too many addictions. And this is ubiquitous across our society. It doesn't matter if you're uh, in the lower quartile socioeconomically in the United States or you're a billionaire. You're inundated with information, thoughts, all these things. So the battle is not with some external enemy. It's actually within to try to resist all of those things. So in a weird way, we're not internally focused enough in the sense that we're not doing battle internally to become wiser, become more um, mindful, all, all kind of the ancient wisdom things we should be doing. And, and then externally, we're playing these tribal games of going after people to either virtue signal or to try to win political points. It's we're a rational- really weird, it's a really weird I love, I
2: love this. I think we're rationalizing our lower emotions. And... Abundance contributes to this, and I think abundance, because what it also does is it puts us in a position where we don't have to make choices, and when you think about how societies are ordered, uh, you have to make choices, because ideas are really, really powerful, mm-hmm. and we have all the extreme examples, communism, you know, how many people did Mao kill? Uh, there is a very, very different way of living in the, the view of, call it, how the Chinese Uh, run their government and society, versus how uh, Americans, even at our, I would say, some of our worst, which by the way, like 1968, way worse than today, Mm -hmm. way worse than today. Um, But at times we struggle. And even in this period of time, it is still better than most other systems because we can work through this. We have to invest in our institutions. But currently, we have a
0: way forward. We have a system that helps us through it. We have the corrective mechanisms in place that would allow us to make adjustments where we need, as long as we have like the individual and collective self-awareness to know what those things are, which I yeah. think that's where we maybe struggle. But so
2: we're almost kind of... You're, you're not making any real choices. We're just kind of reacting. Yeah. And those aren't actual choices. It's not thinking about, what is my philosophy? What is my way of life? And so therefore, you're offended all the time. Yeah. If you have a well-developed worldview and somebody's is different, you're not going to be threatened by that. Mm. You're not. Unless that worldview is actually threatening and you're studied to know what is the difference between you know Nazism right uh, and fascism or just you know a country that has a a and this this is sort of I'm speaking to my kind of my friends on the right side of the aisle is you know, there are democracies that have strong social safety nets and and they're okay yeah. in, in that society but they're not okay here in
0: the United States. At, at scale of 300 at million, scale million people, 300 it's a little bit harder. People. Or,
2: and I, and I also think that they're okay there. I think the ideas of, of freedom and sovereign people, I think it should work everywhere, um, but it doesn't threaten me if it's not working somewhere else or someone's not yeah. trying to make it work somewhere else.
0: Peter, Peter Thiel gave some speech, I think maybe a week ago, at like a national conservatism conference or something mm-hmm. like that. He had a really interesting point that I, I think is kind of relevant to what you just said. He was talking to the left and right and saying what's wrong with both of them. And his point to the left is that basically political correctness is kind of a cancer. And uh, if you turn every single issue into a third rail and no one's willing to talk about anything and you just narrow the Overton window down to the point where no one wants to say anything, there's no marketplace of ideas, everything breaks down. But I thought it was really interesting because he's obviously in front of an audience that was center-right. I think it connects to what you just said. His his point to the right was um, the right has taken the idea of American exceptionalism too far. Mm-hmm. Almost in the sense that they use the idea of American exceptionalism as an excuse not to be self-critical or self-aware of where we've strayed and where we need to edit right. yeah. our society. And I think there's just a lot of truth in that. But you point. forget
2: America. Part of what makes America exceptional is that it's an experiment, right. and you constantly get to recommit to making it better and better and better. Uh, and unless you unless you do that, getting better is not doesn't always be, need to be defined by. Um, some adversary, like I got to make it better because it's threatened by the left,
1: right. or
2: or the left's version. I have to make it better because mm-hmm. it's threatened by the right. You know, sometimes being better is figuring out what are the best ideas. Yeah. Let's battle those ideas and progress. And not everything's Whatever. zero sum. I think, I think there's
0: zero sum. It's not zero sum, but there's an assumption that it might be.
2: But and, so one of those going back to this because I love the question of what is what is being overlooked, and I guess I, I guess my life's work is getting people with an enormous amount of social capital, uh, leaders, uh, to really understand the role that they play in society mm-hmm. and role, and understand the issues that, that shapes them. And so that's the overwhelming majority of what we do um, with Gen X, but I, that also leads us to try to solve problems a little differently. Um, and so we try to kind of reject conventional wisdom on a particular issue, not, not a sort of a starting point, but just to really think, um, you know, should this be looked at differently? Or is that, just ask ourselves, is that the good way, is it not? Sometimes people just default into kind of a, you know, running with the lemmings type of thing. And our biggest project, again, is the building this sort of community of leaders as to be part of the building blocks of the leadership class in our country. It's the most, it's the most important thing we do. Um, we also do work on, and, and I think this is a good example of trying to look at things differently, on counter-extremism. Um, because you see a rise in uh, white supremacy, you see a rise in uh, Islamism and uh, terrorist recruiting in different forms. Right now, ISIS is on decline. But you have Al Qaeda uh, repositioning, um, terrorist groups in Southeast Asia and Africa that are also rebuilding mobilizers. This isn't, in other words, it's not going away. This problem, and I think it is part of it is because we're not looking at it the sort of human to human type of level. These are really, really big, tough, difficult questions, mm-hmm. and what is our education system going to look like? Uh, why is why are we giving our kids the level of debt that we're giving them? And they're definitely not being debated much in Congress. Um, but I think politics is downstream from culture. And so why aren't they being debated, or well, they're not being debated in academia, mm-hmm. where you're training our, our future generations to think about ideas? That's not happening. Um, and it's not happening online. So where is it? And that's, that's part of why I believe that more people need to figure out how to organize with each other in a way that rebuilds our civic life because we need to find new places or just revive places that have traditionally been where we debate what matters in a free society and how do we get there.
1: One of the things I read about preparing for this conversation was how GenNext brings together the right types of folks. But what was more kind of intriguing to me was it talked about educating those folks. And so I, I want to flush that out with you a little bit. I very much subscribe to the idea that taking someone out of their milieu and putting them into something new, they may be better equipped to solve that problem. A, a farmer in Iowa may look at a military solution so much different than a room full of generals mm-hmm. that, that he may actually be the right person for, for that mission, for yeah. example. There may be people here in Silicon Valley uh, who are great in this space, but you want to take them because of their intelligence and because of their accomplishments and look at violent extremism, yep. but they don't know the first thing about it. So how do you get, kind of walk us through that process of bringing folks up to speed?
2: You want, I mean, our recipe is that you try to find people who are wired to, who, to seek perspective. If you are the person who goes inward and you're just not going to be curious, um, you know, so if you're looking at say healthcare or terrorism, like you want to be a person who just says, no, I got the solution. I'm going to shove it in your face. You, you'd rather be the person who says, I need to get perspective on this, mm-hmm. even if you're an expert. You want to look at it through different lenses. Um, so what we try to do is, and I, I think the formula works reasonably well, at least for us, but I think it can work for others, is um, you on some level you have to know where you're going, but also find a way to meet people where they are. Um, and so you want them to be empowered and in the weeds, but they, you also sometimes want to make sure that they're knowledgeable before they really act. So take, take an example of an individual who says, I really care about education. I want to make a difference in education. And mm-hmm. say, oh, okay, what do, you, what do you mean by that? If I want to make a difference in education, the shorthand would be like, so do you want to donate books? Do you want to give money to, you know, to compensate teachers' income? Um, do you want to volunteer to school and mentor kids? You know, those are the very low-hanging fruit ways of doing it. But if you, are, if you want to seek perspective on how to really uh, make a difference in education, then you need to talk to um, elected officials that are writing laws uh, because you'll find that it's a very systemically oriented problem. Uh, you'll need to talk to also teachers. You'll need to talk to parents that are involved or not involved. And so it is, you, you need, I don't know if you would treat it as generalist versus specialist. I would just treat it as perspective. You just need enough perspective to be effective. Mm-hmm. And so what we try to do is pro- give enough perspective and, and create enough fun, to be honest, to, to create a fun learning environment to draw you into um, learning about things that you would just not otherwise learn about. And then you'll find that suddenly this, you know, real estate entrepreneur or tech entrepreneur or management consultant is, is suddenly... A very very valuable resource to the Rand Corporation and which they never would have thought that they could be but I also wonder if that's something tells me my loose study of history tells me that that's kind of how America has always been pretty strong right is knowing how to let the market of ideas and 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 um, and the commercial markets sort where the talent is um, but when we withdraw, you don't have as much of that. We wall people off. You don't have a competition of ideas. You don't even have a pathway to be involved. And so it starts. The, I wonder if there is something where to say that we can't revisit the classics. Is like, a, is our mind? Is there too much dopamine or whatever going on yeah. in our mind? Or that dopam- we're dopamine fiends. Yeah, we're just starting to be a little too, and that—that's a whole other conversation. But. We got to push people to seek perspective, seek purpose, and look. This is not a perfect answer. We're talking about human beings, yeah. And so you are looking at some balance of pretty bold, um, you know, ideas. But I think that's how great leaders are built, and that's how great societies are built.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I also think, going back a little bit to the beginning, people going into their corners, into their tribes. That's another problem, too. You look at the founding fathers, these guys wildly disagree with each other. I mean, so they got into duels, they right? So. So yeah, we can uh, we can uh, you know we I, I agree with your over romanticism of how bad things are relative to how things have been either in 1968 or 1942 right yeah. where it probably felt like the world was ending or 1776 when you basically tweet out a breakup letter with your your overlords <laughs> across. Thomas
2: Jefferson was trying like he was running um, basically subversive campaigns, oh. people the impression that George Washington was senile,
0: right? No, all it was crazy. Set with the
2: position on the French Revolution, and so he, (laughs)
0: Yeah, but they were much more comfortable with not agreeing on everything, and that collision of ideas in a true marketplace of ideas was a very healthy thing that I think led to the ideas upon which the country is built. And I think if we can return back to some semblance of getting more people involved in the conversation, more people not being offended by people that disagree with them, I think we'd be in a lot better place to restore kind of the the town square, the the civic discussion that we kind of want. This is a...
2: You you raised an interesting point, and I wonder if you know the using the founding fathers as an example. I mean, they were they were comfortable with debate. Um, they also were at times super mean and hated each other. as what there's that book, Founding Brothers, that kind of dives into the dynamics between them. But I wonder if the stakes and the ideas debated were just so much. They were big. Mm-hmm. They were really big, and what consumes a lot of our attention are ideas that affect a smaller amount of people. Mm -hmm. Now that's a dangerous point and I will concede because, um, I'm not, I'm I'm not into a, a, you know, majoritarian rule. I want there to be checks on this. But I think there is something to explore there of how are we releasing the passions and, and rolling up some of these, um, some of these ideas that were getting debated and, 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 and bringing, um, bringing up to a level that affects a much larger amount of people or, as I would more and so introduce it, um, future generations. Just that's think of things more as the, the largest amount of people for future generations. If just That conversation
0: seems to be lost. Yep. So my understanding of, of Gen Next and your guys' mission is there's kind of three pillars, to, or like three kind of issue areas that you guys focus on. You already mentioned education briefly. We should mm-hmm. talk more about that. Economic opportunity is a second one, and the third global security. How mm-hmm. do you think about local, kind of the, the micro versus the macro, and where you guys put your 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 membership base? Where you put that leverage? Do you deploy it in different areas, I local, to actually, local, state, and national, yeah. or or is your thinking I, on it shifting?
2: No, I try. We try to we try to organize the call it the uh, the positioning and the strategy. Um, in sort of this way. It, one, it, it's not a local, regional, national, global, uh, we don't sort of compartmentalize it that way. I think we try to look for what's gonna cut through at any level, mm. right? So you start with philosophy, right? You, you know, competitive markets, um, a community, democracy, um, f- free society, sovereign people. Um, You're basically Western civilization, classically liberal ideas at a, at a, at a philosophical, Uh, Level, so you start with that. Which you would apply those that philosophy. You could apply that in any country, in any community, in any place. You you apply that in in, on Mars, like whatever. So you have philosophy. Elon Musk will. I well, (laughs) I don't know if he will. (laughs) That's 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 another one. Um, But so you have philosophy, and then you have issues. So what are the issues that capture the most? In our case, if we view the three biggest issues. that will advance society called three pillars are are economic opportunity, education, and security. Now you break those further down and you say okay there's sub-issues like on economic opportunity there's the tax code, there's the regulatory state, you know, there's the the there's energy, there's name it, name it, trade, there's all these issues and then you break it down to another level of um, policies and then legislation and then politics and then zeitgeist. And so if you if you could take any sort of issue, whatever topic on the table and run it through that type of analysis, then you'll find that you're going to be impactful at almost any uh, geographical strike point. So for us, take the issue of extremism. Education's a tougher one and I'll mention that, but um, on, on security issues, unfortunately radicalization terrorist recruitment is spread all over the place. And we know that homegrown violent extremism is a real issue. So, but if we can mobilize former violent extremists all over the world, they could be active with the Special Operations Command and they could be active with the Seattle Police Department, right? Because the threat is that, you know, not ubiquitous, but it's pervasive. So um, that's one way of looking at sort of that issue, how we choose an issue. The other, I think education is you you really have to know your philosophical standpoint and i would probably more articulate it as it should be kid-centered and as close to the kid and the family as you possibly can make it um now then you start asking yourself well what's the role of federal government versus state government versus local government um and but we live in a system that's very decentralized and that's 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 a, that's better but all these cultural issues that yeah. we were talking about start to affect that in a really big
0: way so Give me kind of not the tweet length, but maybe the uh, the Facebook post length. Quick spiel on these top three issues and and your perspective on how we attack them, the vectors along which we would attack economic opportunity, education, and global security.
2: Um, on economic opportunity, we we have a a safety net system that is that is. Set up to fail, it, but demographics alone, and then you could throw in technology. It's just not keeping up, um, and you, and therefore it's driving a level of debt payload that we're not able to invest in really anything. We can't a- invest in space exploration. We can't invest in conservation. We can't invest in uh, com- a competitive tax code. Like e- everything is 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 is. is We we sort of debate it like it's scarcity, but it's not. It's really just abundance and kind of gluttonous, (laughs) the way we go about our priorities. But if you step back, you think, well, what does economic opportunity mean? Mostly we we evaluate it by GDP um, and job creation, but I think we should think of it more as mobility and how are we thinking of it generationally and how are generations performing over time? Uh, and so, therefore, you will look at how even is the economic growth. You'll start to ask more questions like that. Maybe you, then you would sort of blunt tides of, of populism. You would be thinking more about how people are going to be left behind or, um, or how what are the biggest opportunities to advance. But I think the real frame of reference does need to be um, you know, social mobility, economic mobility, and it shouldn't be hijacked by... In my opinion, in, income inequality, which I think takes the point of view of a more divisive um, type of class warfare, is yeah. sort of at the core. As opposed to let's let's we know that free enterprise it helps people be wealthy of all forms. So let's figure out how to distribute it more broadly. So economic opportunity, really anything around uh, generational mobility, economic mobility. Um, but if you don't. You'll notice though that when you have debates around this, it's like, uh, well, take social security. Which is which is unsustainable. Yep. But it needs very very simple changes.
0: Yeah, like we retire at seventy <laughs> yeah, she, instead of sixty-eight. <laughs> and Those of us that are under forty. Very, very. And so what happens? So the
2: debate is around very simple things yeah. like that, and it is like it gets it's damaged. a death match. Oh, completely. so
0: so that that's Paul, an example. Paul Ryan's pushing Granny off of the right, cliff, right? right, right even though right. he's talking about someone who's thirty-six years old, not someone who's seventy-six in Florida. It's, uh,
2: it's sad. And then you yeah. have so on education is that's just. That's literally run by special interests and adults. It's not even considered sort of, I think, the kids and their outcome because you have the moral element, which is we have a system that most kids uh, are legally bound to go through. And in some cases, now we have the research to show that that plays a pretty significant role to sending them on, depending on the school, either on the road to some addiction or on the road to prison. And so there's a moral element, but there's also an economic element where they're not competing with um, the city next door, they're competing with a heck of a lot more people. So we're not thinking about what do our kids need, and and therefore, every decision follows that. How much we pay our teachers follows that. Who gets hired, who gets fired follows that. What topics we teach them follows that. Everything should follow that. But instead, if you use the experience of a political campaign, we recently had a campaign with uh, two Democrats for uh, Superintendent of Public Instruction in California. And the debate you know, was not about what our kids need in the future. It was Marshall Tuck, who was one of the candidates in his past, had a private sector job, and he was a you know villain of Wall Street. And that was it. So um, some form of identity politics there and class warfare there, but not debating the education system. So that's another element. And then on global security, I would say the big issue is what is America's role in the world, um, and what ideas should animate um, a peaceful world? And so you then this sort of a next issue starts to become very geopolitical, you know, relations with China, relations with Russia. Then you get into more functional issues, terrorism, cyber, et cetera, et cetera. But unless you really understand, well, what do we stand for and what do we want to be? Um, you know, right now it's a little bit more like we're taken for granted. Let's withdraw or um, or let's be heavy-handed, involved with just what do we want to be? And there needs to be, um, what do we stand for? What are we willing to tolerate? What are we not? There needs to be that level of kind of debate. And so we take the point of view from the private sector. Given that, that is, security is heavily the domain of government, we still believe that it requires um, a citizenry to figure out how to, how, to, how to solve problems that the government maybe is incapable of solving. And we happen to have now threats that are transnational Network driven that require transnational and network driven solutions, and so that's why we play a big role in counter extremism because it's a it's a private sector, private sector is needed for that type of a solution. So, um, and I didn't go into on security. I didn't go into like illicit networks. I didn't go into cyber. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't go into the fact that we have a massive divide between the tech sector and I would just say a, that'll be part two for, of the
0: podcast. I'm sure. I'm already I'm already signing yeah. you up for round two.
2: But all these three. Um, these three big pillars I think we will either delay failure um, um, or prevent progress if we do not have our best and brightest people thinking about it paying at least some attention to it um, have some element of structure in their life that keeps their attention and their curiosity on it Um, And when we skip to the point of dealing with these issues, we're going to be defined by the narrow perspective or narrow lane. We won't be defined by, like, let's step back. First principles, big impact, and let's have a debate about big ideas. Yeah.
0: It seems like on all these issues, we're sort of presented with a series of false choices. Mm -hmm. And so global security, right, it's either we pull back from the world... And we have no engagement with the rest of the world, kind of the isolationist approach. Versus, we're the world's policemen. We're nation building. We're burning billions of dollars in blood and treasure, you know, in the Middle East. And and those are really I, those feel like false choices to me. And I think you just go down the list. You look at economic opportunity. One side's talking about income inequality nonstop, and, and the other side maybe. Well, I would it,
2: say and the other side's just talking about taxes.
0: Right. It's not even, that's it. And not about spending and okay. debt. And, and so maybe maybe my perspective is that. I think we sort of have this hollowing out of the middle of our society, and I think we don't elect the best and brightest people, and we can't be relying on government solely to solve these problems, which is one of the huge uh, part of the the mission of Gen X is to get private sector leaders involved. But because we don't have those people involved, those, those best and brightest people that are across a spectrum of ideas, you end up with this very bifurcated false choice of two really bad options and we play ping pong and debate those back and forth mm-hmm. and until we revive and have a revival of I would say the middle in terms of just people that are looking for that third option on all on all three of these issues and more, I think we're gonna be as you said, we're gonna be sort of stuck and we're gonna be mm-hmm. sort of stagnant at yeah. best. Yeah, or or, or it could get or it could get worse. Yeah.
2: We have we have a there's a political class, there's an intellectual class, you know, there's a working class, but we don't have a leadership class. Yeah and um and i think that, that that group of people leaders in society people who have followers people who have means talent um i think they could do an extraordinary amount of good on the i think the bigger picture which is our you call it our our civic life and really over time achieve an element of um, social progress that will set an example for our kids it will equip us be help us be better prepared to deal with big problems um and so for any of your listeners who are in leadership positions I think every one of them should give a long hard reflection on what does that mean uh what is the world they want to live in and how are they going about shaping it
0: so if someone listening to this podcast wants to get involved with the work you're doing at gen next or get in touch what's the best way for them to do that
2: uh well genx.com and our we're on twitter gen underscore next
0: um I think we're on Instagram, Jen underscore. Are next. you active on Twitter or are you smart enough to stay off of it uh, like myself? <laughs> we're, we're on it.
2: It's I mean our, our universe is a it's a it's a it's a relatively small but mighty universe yeah. of people. Um but you still get a sense of what we're up to.
1: Yeah.
2: But I just if you're interested in being involved, then you could also just email me, Michael at genx.com or um or get on our website.
1: All right. Well uh Michael Davidson, thank you so much for stopping by. It was a great conversation and thank you all for tuning in.
0: Awesome. Thank you, guys. That's a wrap for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. If you'd like to connect, you can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Tibbets and at Mr. Alex Khan. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review us on iTunes to spread the word. And until
1: next time, take care of yourself.